Section six of the Quintessence of Ibsenism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. The Quintessence of Ibsenism by George Bernard Shaw. Section six The Plays Emperor and Galilean. When Ibsen by merely giving the rein to the creative impulse of his poetic nature, had produced Brand and Peer Gint, he was nearly forty. His will, in setting his imagination to work, had produced a great puzzle for his intellect. In no case does the difference between the will and the intellect come out more clearly than in that of the poet, save only that of the lover. Had Ibsen died in 1867, he, like many another great poet, would have gone to his grave without having ever rationally understood his own meaning. Nay, if in that year an intellectual expert, a commentator, as we call him, had gone to Ibsen and offered him the explanation of Brand which he himself must have arrived at before he constructed Ghosts and the Wild Duck, he would perhaps have repudiated it with as much disgust as a maiden would feel if anyone were brutal enough to give her the physiological rationale of her dreams of meeting a fairy prince. It is only the naif who goes to the creative artist with absolute confidence in receiving an answer to his, what does this passage mean? That is the very question which the poet's own intellect, which had no part in the conception of the poem, may be asking him. And this curiosity of the intellect, this restless life in it which differentiates it from dead machinery and which troubles our lesser artists but little is one of the marks of the greater sort shakespeare and hamlet made a drama of the self-questioning that came upon him when his intellect rose up in alarm as well it might against the vulgar optimism of his henry v and yet could mend it to no better purpose than by the equally vulgar pessimism of troilus and cressida Dante took pains to understand himself, so did Goethe. Richard Wagner, one of the greatest poets of our own day, has left us as many volumes of criticism of art and life as he has left musical scores, and he has expressly described how the intellectual activity which he brought to the analysis of his music dramas was in abeyance during their creation. Just so do we find Ibsen, after composing his two great dramatic poems, entering on a struggle to become intellectually conscious of what he had done. We have seen that with Shakespeare such an effort became itself creative and produced a drama of questioning. With Ibsen the same thing occurred. He harked back to an abandoned project of his, and wrote two huge dramas on the subject of the apostasy of the Emperor Julian. In this work we find him at first preoccupied with a piece of old-fashioned free-thinking, the dilemma that moral responsibility presupposes free will, and that free will sets man above God. Cain, who slew because he willed, willed because he must, and must have willed to slay because he was himself, comes upon the stage to claim that murder is fertile and death the ground of life, though he cannot say what is the ground of death. Judas, who betrayed under the same necessity, wants to know whether, since the master chose him, he chose him foreknowingly. This part of the drama has no very deep significance. It is easy to invent conundrums which dogmatic evangelicalism cannot answer, and no doubt, whilst it was still a nine days' wonder that evangelicalism could not solve all enigmas, such invention seemed something much deeper than the mere intellectual chess-play which it is seen to be now that the nine days are past. 
in his occasional weakness for such conundrums and later on in his harping on the hereditary transmission of disease we see ibsen's active intellect busy not only with the problems peculiar to his own plays but with the fatalism and pessimism of the middle of our century when the typical advanced culture was attainable by reading strauss's leben Jesu, the popularizations of helmholtz and darwin by tyndall and huxley and george eliot's novels vainly protested against by ruskin as peopled with the sweepings of a pentonville omnibus the traces of this period in ibsen's writings show how well he knew the crushing weight with which the sordid cares of the ordinary struggle for money and respectability fell on the world when the romance of the creeds was discredited and progress seemed for the moment to mean not the growth of the spirit of men but an effect of the survival of the fittest brought about by the destruction of the unfit all the most frightful examples of this systematic destruction being thrust into the utmost prominence by those who were fighting the church with mill's favorite dialectical weapon the incompatibility of divine omnipotence with divine benevolence his plays are full of evidence of his overwhelming sense of the necessity for rousing the individual into self-assertion against this numbing fatalism and yet he never seems to have freed his intellect wholly from an acceptance of its scientific validity that it only accounted for progress at all on the hypothesis of a continuous increase in the severity of the conditions of existence that is on an assumption of just the reverse of what was actually taking place appears to have escaped ibsen as completely as it has escaped professor huxley himself it is true that he did not allow himself to be stopped by this gloomy fortress of pessimism and materialism his genius pushed him past it but without intellectually reducing it and the result is that as far as one can guess he believes to this day that it is impregnable not dreaming that it has been demolished and that too with ridiculous ease by the mere march behind him of the working class which by its freedom from the characteristic bias of the middle classes has escaped their characteristic illusions and solved many of the enigmas which they found insoluble because they wished to find them so his prophetic belief in the spontaneous growth of the will makes him a mellorist without reference to the operation of natural selection but his impression of the light thrown by physical and biological science on the facts of life seems to be the gloomy one of the period at which he must have received his education in these departments external nature often plays her most ruthless and destructive part in his works which have an extraordinary fascination for the pessimists of that school in spite of the incompatibility of his individualism with that mechanical utilitarian ethic of theirs which treats man as the sport of every circumstance and ignores his will altogether another inessential but very prominent feature in ibsen's dramas will be understood easily by anyone who has observed how a change of religious faith intensifies our concern about our own salvation an ideal pious or secular is practically used as a standard of conduct and whilst it remains unquestioned the simple rule of right is to conform to it in the theological stage when the bible is accepted as the revelation of god's will the pious man when in doubt as to whether he is acting rightly or wrongly quiets his misgivings by searching the scripture until he finds a text which endorses his actions footnote as such misgivings seldom arise except when the conscience revolts against the contemplated action an appeal to scripture to justify a point of conduct is generally found in practice to be an attempt to excuse a crime and footnote the rationalist for whom the bible has no authority brings his conduct to such tests as asking himself after kant how it would be if everyone did as he proposes to do 
or by calculating the effect of his action on the greatest happiness of the greatest number or by judging whether the liberty of action he is claiming infringes the equal liberty of others etc etc most men are ingenious enough to pass examinations of this kind successfully in respect to everything they really want to do but in periods of transition as for instance when faith in the infallibility of the bible is shattered and faith in that of reason not yet perfected men's uncertainty as to the rightness and wrongness of their actions keeps them in a continual perplexity amid which causatry seems the most important branch of intellectual activity life as depicted by ibsen is very full of it we find the great double drama of emperor and galilean occupied at first with julian's case regarded as a case of conscience it is compared in the manner already described with the cases of cain and judas the three men being introduced as cornerstones under the wrath of necessity great freedmen under necessity and so forth the qualms of julian are theatrically effective in producing the most exciting suspense as to whether he will dare to choose between christ and the imperial purple but the mere exhibition of a man struggling between his ambition and his creed belongs to a phase of intellectual interest which ibsen had passed even before the production of brand when he wrote his kongs emern or the pretenders emperor and galilean might have been appropriately if prosaically named the mistake of maximus the mystic it is maximus who forces the choice on julian not as between ambition and principle between paganism and christianity between the old beauty that is no longer beautiful and the new truth that is no longer true but between christ and julian himself maximus knows that there is no going back to the first empire of pagan sensualism the second empire christian or self-abnegatory idealism is already rotten at the heart the third empire is what he looks for the empire of man asserting the eternal validity of his own will he who can see that not on olympus not nailed to the cross but in himself is god he is the man to build brand's bridge between the flesh and the spirit establishing this third empire in which the spirit shall not be known nor the flesh starved nor the will tortured and baffled thus throughout the first part of the double drama we have julian prompted step by step to the stupendous conviction that he and not the galilean is god his final resolution to seize the throne is expressed in his interruption of the lord's prayer which he hears intoned by worshippers in church as he wrestles in the gloom of the catacombs with his own fears and the entreaties and threats of his soldiers urging him to take the final decisive step at the queue lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil he rushes into the church with his soldiers exclaiming for mine is the kingdom yet he halts on the threshold dazzled by the light as his follower solaced points the declaration by adding and the kingdom and the power and the glory once on the throne julian becomes a mere pedant tyrant trying to revive paganism mechanically by cruel enforcement of external conformity to its rights in his moments of exultation he half grasps the meaning of maximus only to relapse presently and pervert it into a grotesque mixture of superstition and monstrous vanity we have him making such speeches as this worthy of peer gent at his most ludicrous has not plato long ago enunciated the truth that only a god can rule over men what did he mean by that saying answer me what did he mean far be it from me to assert that plato incomparable sage though he was had any individual even the greatest in his prophetic eye etc in this frame of mind christ appears to him not as the prototype of himself 
as Maximus would have him feel, but as a rival god over whom he must prevail at all costs. It galls him to think that the Galilean still reigns in the hearts of men, whilst the emperor can only extort lip honor from them by brute force, for in his wildest excesses of egotism he never so loses his saving sense of the realities of things as to mistake the trophies of persecution for the fruits of faith. Tell me who shall conquer, he demands of Maximus, the emperor or the Galilean. Both the emperor and the Galilean shall succumb, says Maximus, whether in our time or in hundreds of years, I know not, but so it shall be when the right man comes. Who is the right man, says Julian? He who shall swallow up both emperor and Galilean, replies the seer. Both shall succumb, but you shall not therefore perish. Does not the child succumb in the youth? and the youth in the man, yet neither child nor youth perishes. You know I have never approved of your policy as emperor. You have tried to make the youth a child again. The empire of the flesh is fallen a prey to the empire of the spirit. But the empire of the spirit is not final, any more than the youth is. You have tried to hinder the youth from growing, from becoming a man. O oh, fool, who have drawn your sword against that which is to be, against the third empire, in which the twin natured shall reign. For him the Jews have a name, they call him Messiah, and are waiting for him. Still Julian stumbles on the threshold of the idea without entering into it. He is galled out of all comprehension by the rivalry of the Galilean, and asks despairingly who shall break his power. Then Maximus drives the lesson home. Maximus, is it not written, Thou shall have none other gods but me? Julian, yes, yes, yes. Maximus, the seer of Nazareth did not preach this God or that. He said, God is I, I am God. Julian, and that is what makes the emperor powerless? The third empire? The Messiah? Not the Jews' Messiah, but the Messiah of the two empires, the spirit and the world? Maximus, the God emperor. Julian, the emperor God. Maximus, logos in pan, pan in logos. Julian, how is he begotten? Maximus, he is self-begotten in the man who wills. But it is of no use. Maximus's idea is a synthesis of relations in which not only is Christ God in exactly the same sense as that in which Julian is God, but Julian is Christ as well. The persistence of Julian's jealousy of the Galilean shews that he had not comprehended the synthesis at all, but only seized on that part of it which flatters his own egotism and since this part is only valid as a constituent of the synthesis and has no reality when isolated from it it cannot by itself convince julian in vain does maximus repeat his lesson in every sort of parable and in such pregnant questions as how do you know julian that you were not in him whom you now persecute he can only wreak him to utter commands to the winds and to exclaim in the excitement of burning his fleet on the borders of persia the third empire is here maximus i feel that the messiah of the earth lives within me the spirit has become flesh and the flesh spirit all creation lies within my will and power more than the fleet is burning in that glowing swirling pyre the crucified galilean is burning to ashes and the earthly emperor is burning with a galilean but from the ashes shall arise phoenix-like the god of earth and the emperor of the spirit in one in one in one at which point he is informed that the persian refugee whose information has emboldened him to burn his ships has fled from the camp and is a manifest spy from that moment he is a broken man 
In his next and last emergency, when the Persians fall upon his camp, his first desperate exclamation is a vow to sacrifice to the gods. To what gods, O fool, cries Maximus, where are they, and what are they? I will sacrifice to this god and that god, I will sacrifice to many, he answers desperately. One or other must surely hear me. I must call on something without me and above me. A flash of lightning seems to him a response from above, and with this encouragement he throws himself into the fight, clinging, like Macbeth, to an ambiguous oracle which leads him to suppose that only in the Phrygian regions need he fear defeat. He imagines he sees the Nazarenes in the ranks of the enemy, and in fighting madly to reach him, he is struck down, in the name of Christ, by one of his own soldiers. Then his one Christian general, Jovian, calls on his believing brethren to give Caesar what is Caesar's. Declaring that the heavens are open and the angels coming to the rescue with their swords of fire, he rallies the Galileans of whom Julian has made slave soldiers, the pagan free legions, crying out that the god of the Galileans is on the Roman side, and that he is the strongest, follow Jovian as he charges the enemy, who fly in all directions, whilst Julian, sinking back from a vain effort to rise, exclaims, Thou hast conquered, O Galilean. Julian dies quietly in his tent, averring in reply to a Christian friend's inquiry that he has nothing to repent of. The power which circumstances placed in my hands, he says, and which is an emanation of divinity, I am conscious of having used to the best of my skill. I have never wittingly wronged anyone. If some should think that I have not fulfilled all expectations, they should in justice reflect that there is a mysterious power outside us, which in a great measure governs the issue of human undertakings. He still does not see eye to eye with Maximus, though there is a flash of insight in his remark to him when he learns that the village where he fell is called the Phrygian region, and that the world will has laid an ambush for him. It was something for Julian to have seen that the power which he found stronger than his individual will was itself will, but inasmuch as he conceived it, not as the whole of which his will was but a part, but as a rival will, he was not the man to found the third empire. He had felt the Godhead in himself, but not in others. Being only able to say with half conviction, the kingdom of heaven is within me, he had been utterly vanquished by the Galilean who had been able to say, the kingdom of heaven is within you but he was on the way to that full truth. A man cannot believe in others until he believes in himself, for his conviction of the equal worth of his fellows must be filled by the overflow of his conviction of his own worth. Against the spurious Christianity of asceticism, starving that indispensable prior conviction, Julian rightly rebelled, and Maximus rightly incited him to rebel. But Maximus could not fill the prior conviction even to fullness, much less to overflowing, for the third empire was not yet, and is not yet. Still the tyrant dies with a peaceful conscience, and Maximus is able to tell the priest at the bedside that the world will shall answer for Julian's soul. What troubles the mystic is his having misled Julian by encouraging him to bring upon himself the fate of Cain and Judas. As water can be boiled by fire, man can be prompted and stimulated from without to assert his individuality. But just as no boiling can fill a half-empty well, no external stimulus can enlarge the spirit of a man to the point at which he can self-beget the emperor God in himself by willing. At that point, to will is to have to will. And it is with these words on his lips that Maximus leaves the stage, still sure that the third empire is to come. It is not necessary to translate the scheme of emperor and Galilean into terms of the antithesis between idealism and realism. Julian, in this respect, is a reincarnation of Pierre Gint. 
all the difference is that the subject which was instinctively projected in the earlier poem is intellectually constructed as well in the later history julian plus maximus the mystic being peer plus one who understands him better than ibsen did when he created him the current interest of ibsen's interpretation of the original christianity is obvious the deepest sayings recorded in the gospels are now nothing but eccentric paradoxes to most of those who reject the superstitious view of christ's divinity those who accept that view often consider that such acceptance absolves them from attaching any sensible meaning to his words at all and so might as well pin their faith to a stock or a stone of these attitudes the first is superficial and the second stupid ibsen's interpretation whatever may be its validity will certainly hold the field long after the current christianity as it has been aptly called becomes unthinkable ibsen had now written three immense dramas all dealing with the effect of idealism on the individual egotists of exceptional imaginative excitability this he was able to do whilst his intellectual consciousness of his theme was yet incomplete by simply portraying sides of himself he has put himself into the skin of brand of Pierre Gint and of Julian, and these figures have accordingly a certain direct vitality which belongs to none of his subsequent creations of the male sex. There are flashes of it in Relling, in Lovberg, in Alida's Stranger from the Sea, but they are only flashes. Henceforth all his really vivid and solar figures are women. For having at last completed his intellectual analysis of idealism, he could now construct methodical illustrations of its social working instead of, as before, blindly projecting imaginary personal experiences which he himself had not yet succeeded in interpreting further now that he understood the matter he could see plainly the effect of idealism as a social force on people quite unlike himself that is to say on everyday people in everyday life on shipbuilders bank managers parsons and doctors as well as on saints romantic adventurers and emperors with his eyes thus opened instances of the mischief of idealism crowded upon him so rapidly that he began deliberately to inculcate their moral by writing realistic prose plays of modern life abandoning all production of art for art's sake his skill as a playwright and his genius as an artist were thenceforth used only to secure attention and effectiveness for his detailed attack on idealism no more verse no more tragedy for the sake of tears or comedy for the sake of laughter no more seeking to produce specimens of art forms in order that literary critics might fill the public belly with the east wind the critics it is true soon declared that he had ceased to be an artist but he having something else to do with his talent than to fulfil critics definitions took no notice of them not thinking their ideal sufficiently important to write a play about End of section six.